If you have your Bibles, please turn with me this evening again to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 25 tonight, 14 through 25. Now you might be thinking, didn't we already study those verses? Yes, that's true. However, sometimes we zoom out and take in the forest and not lose it for the trees, and other times we'll zoom in and consider those individual and specific trees. Well, last Lord's Day evening, that was one of those zoom out sermons where we used that first plague as a a template to consider all nine of the first plagues and to think about those macro themes that we see unfolding, God's glory, God's judgment, God's people, and God's servant as they appear in chapters 7 through 10. But now we want to return to this first plague and consider it a little more pointedly. And we may do the same with each of the plagues and consider what God is communicating both to Egypt as well as to his own people, including us. So let's look now first at this first plague, the river Nile turned to blood. First we'll read God's word and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing on our study of it. So Exodus 7, beginning at first, verse 14 and reading through the end of the chapter. This is God's holy word. Hear it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned, went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this evening. May he write its eternal truth on each one of our hearts. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, open our eyes. Open our ears. Speak to us. Grant us understanding. Send your Holy Spirit and his ministry of illumination as we give ourselves over to the study and to devotion to your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
four points or four contours to guide our study of the passage tonight, friends. Many commentators use a similar outline, so it's absolutely not unique to me, but it is a useful outline to consider the text. First, Jehovah's demand. Second, Egypt's disaster. Third, deities dethroned. And fourth, Pharaoh's disobedience. Jehovah's demand, Egypt's disaster, deities dethroned, and then fourthly, Pharaoh's disobedience. I don't know who the first man is that came up with that outline, but I'm guessing they may have been a Presbyterian, given with that letter D alliteration on all four of those points. Presbyterians love their alliteration, so that's all right. It is hard to find a modern equivalent to how devastating this event would have been to Egypt and to her economy. But I think a fair comparison for our day would be oil. We can all recall how in the early 2010s, or at least most of us can recall, when there was the oil spill disaster off the Mississippi Gulf Coast, supplies went down, prices went up, and people were panicking. Or, more recently, with the conflict in Ukraine, Russia shut down a number of its major oil pipelines into Germany and elsewhere, and it brought Europe to its knees. Energy prices skyrocketing, people panicking, consequences would have been devastating. Something comparable, something comparable is happening here with Egypt and the Nile. Now, once again, we're calling these events at times plagues, but strictly speaking, the Bible often refers to them as God's signs and wonders. If you look back here in chapter 7, there at the top, close to the top of the chapter, at verse 3, God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Nevertheless, we can use the term plague rightly when referring to these events. As we've noted before, our English word plague comes from the Latin plaga, which means to strike or to blow, which is exactly what's happening here in Egypt. God said in Exodus 3, verse 20, God said to Moses, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. So it's a fair and safe thing to say that these are plagues that the Lord is bringing down these blows upon Egypt, one after the other. And in order to understand the significance of these plagues, well, listen to how Jim Boyce, the late Jim Boyce, explains it. He says this, Understand that these plagues were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel. There were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered about the three great natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land itself, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues God sent against Egypt follow this three-fold and three-force pattern. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four plagues were leveled against the land gods, and the final four plagues were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And you see there at verse 16, when we understand that these, these really is a, a theological warfare that's going on in a, to a great extent, theological warfare of the Lord God Almighty through the words and through the deeds of Moses and Aaron leveling these blows against the false and fickle and pathetic idols of Egypt. And we understand that that's the great agenda that's going on here with all these plagues. These are not random. These are not arbitrary. God is taking aim at the deities of Egypt and her, her religion. Verse 16. You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let 
my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. So that's the first thing for us to see here is Jehovah's demand. Understanding the context, understanding the setup of the theological warfare that's going on here, understanding that the deities of Egypt are in God's sights, they're in his crosshairs, particularly the Nile deities here. In this instance, the first thing for us to see is Jehovah's demand. Let my people go. This is what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh back way back in chapter 3 at the burning bush. It's what Moses and Aaron said to Pharaoh when they met him at the palace. Over and over, God kept making this demand to the king of Egypt through his spokesman. And over and over, Pharaoh kept stubbornly refusing. But God's demand has not changed, has it? And this is an important principle to remember, friends. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the lovely language of our catechism, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And his righteous demands still have not changed. What was true for Pharaoh during the Exodus is still yet true for sinners in salvation. God's terms remain unchanged. And we make this point because sometimes people have this misguided way of thinking about God, particularly as they think of him in terms of how he was in the Old Testament and now how he is in the New Testament. And, of course, we want to be patient with folks. Right? Many, many folks have not gotten good teaching on this matter, so we don't, we don't want to yell and holler and scream and bash our Bibles and our systematic theologies over their heads. But sometimes we know folks have fallen into this line of thinking because they haven't been given good teaching. Maybe you yourself have thought this way at one point. This line of thinking tends to go something like this. In the Old Covenant, God's people were saved by law-keeping, by following his rules, by offering sacrifices and ritual and bloodshed, animals on the altar, by having the exacting standards of holiness. Whew, but thank goodness, now in the New Testament, it's much easier, it's simpler, because now we're in by grace and by simple faith in Jesus. Boy, aren't we glad to be alive and to relate to God in the New Testament and not the Old Testament. And even in the way that I laid it out there just now, that's only partially accurate. Because the truth is, God's demands of holiness have not changed. Think back to Eden. In Eden, Adam and Eve, in order to have fellowship with God, in order to be in his presence, what was required? Perfect and perpetual obedience to his law. They were to obey his command unyieldingly. Perfectly, perpetually. Holiness was expected of them. Obedience was expected of them. Righteousness was expected of them. And even now, if you want to be in God's presence, if you want communion and fellowship with him, what must you have? You must have holiness. God's righteous requirement has not changed. But, praise God, the good news is someone has kept the whole law. There is one who has been perfectly righteous. Perfectly holy in your room and in your stead. One who has succeeded where Adam abysmally failed. Our father Adam abysmally failed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This was the declaration in Leviticus in the Old Testament. And praise God, the blood of Jesus Christ has been shed so that you might have your sins forgiven. Though you are by, by nature and natively in Adam, he who failed, there is hope. 
Because by faith in Christ, you may be in Christ, so that all the righteous perfections that are demanded of you, that are expected of you, that are, that are God's divine right to have from you, those righteous demands have been met through and in him, so that his righteousness, by, by meeting of God's holy demands, may be reckoned, they may be credited to your account by faith, so that in him you are righteous. In him you might have fellowship with God now and forevermore because of one who has met God's righteous demands in your place. Praise God. God's demands have not changed, but in Christ they have been met. Do you believe that? God's demands, God's holiness, God's righteous standards have not changed, but in Christ Jesus they have been met for you and for all who would trust in him. Cling to him by faith, dear friends. God is unchanging. That's good news for us if we know it in Christ. It's not so good news for Pharaoh here, is it? We see the basic demand from God. It's that he should let his people go so that they may be free to worship him. You see that there in verse 16. You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Now, depending on which English translation you're using, your translation might say worship, or it might say serve. It's the same Hebrew word. To serve the Lord is to worship him. That's why when you're, you're reading Psalm 100 or you're singing Psalm 100, sometimes it'll say serve the Lord with gladness, or sometimes it'll say worship the Lord with gladness. Same thing. The chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy God. And the chief end of God's operations in liberating his people from Egypt's clutches is so that they may be freed to do what? To worship him. Liberated to worship him. But Pharaoh refuses. Verse 14. It's interesting. When scripture uses the phrase, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it uses a couple different verbs when it uses that phrase in different points throughout the Exodus narratives. One of the verbs, for example, is in Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, where God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Literally, it means to make heavy. He will make Pharaoh's heart heavy. And in other instances, like in Exodus chapter 14, verse 4, where God uses that same verb about himself, it means there he will be glorified. That's what glorify means, literally, to make heavy. Uh, that's almost always the word used in the Old Testament whenever it speaks about the glory of God, the, the heaviness of God's glory. So in that instance, in Exodus 14, verse 4, the heaviness of heart that we see earlier about Pharaoh, no, God uses it about himself and speaking about his own glory. The point being, here's that word heavy as it's employed regarding Pharaoh and his wicked heart. Here's that word heavy, perverted and warped by Pharaoh. His heart made heavy hardened, refusing to let God's people worship. In his, in his delusional kind of thinking, supposing that he can somehow rob Yahweh, rob God of his glory and keep it for his own self if he just doesn't let those Hebrews get out of his sight and go worship their God. He's going he's gonna to rob God of his glory, keep it to himself in his own perverted self-conception of his own artificial divinity. You see what sin does to this mind of his. Notice that God told Moses to wait for Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile. Verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Now, scripture doesn't tell us exactly why Pharaoh went there. 
A morning swim, perhaps? Maybe. More likely, though, is that he went down to pay homage to the gods of the Nile, sort of a morning devotional ritual. But in any event, as he goes down to do that, it was time for another round of the ancient conflict. It was time to show which god was truly sovereign, which god was truly omnipotent and truly God. Pharaoh needed to understand that this plague was God's work because God's purpose was to show the Egyptians who was truly Lord. And so, verse 17, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And once again, we see, as is so often the case with signs and miracles in the Scripture, the point was to verify and validate the truth claims that God was making. You think later on in your New Testament, when John the Baptist asked for proof that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 4 and 5, he says, Go back and report to John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. Most climactically, of course, is the miracle of the resurrection. The miracles serve to prove that Jesus is who he said he was. He is Lord. That's what's happening here, likewise, in the Exodus account. These miracles, these wonders and signs that God is performing are serving to drive home the point before stubborn Pharaoh and his stubborn sorcerers. Here's the true God. It's interesting, sometimes the Lord impresses the truth of his word upon an audience in acts and miracles of grace, the resurrection, and other times he has to make his point through mighty acts of judgment. It took an outpouring of divine wrath to convince Pharaoh that the God of Israel was Lord over all the gods of Egypt, impotent deities who are no gods at all. Now there's a summons, and there's a warning, brothers and sisters, friends. The truth is all men, all women, will be made to recognize the one true God. The question is, will it take an outpouring of wrath to persuade you, to to drive you to bend the knee in fealty and homage to the King of Kings? Or will you rather be moved like the disciples at the message of the angels? You remember what happened there? The angels say to them, he's not here. He's risen. Come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Worshipped him. All men, all women, every boy, every girl who's ever lived will be made to bend the knee in homage and fealty and worship to the one true God. The question is, what will bring it about? Will you hear the good news with gladness? Will that move you to worship the risen Lord? Or will it take that divine outpouring of divine wrath in order to get your attention and persuade you to do that which is Jehovah's crown right? So, worship. And glory to the one true God. That is the first thing. That is Jehovah's demand. Worship and glory belong to him. Let my people go that they may worship me aright. That's the first thing for us to see. But then secondly, Egypt's disaster. Egypt's disaster. 
Look at verses 20 and 21. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And here we have a moment of divine irony on account of delusional Pharaoh who who turns glory on its head for his own narcissism. God responds in kind. He turns the Nile on its head in, in dreadful reversal. This water, which is meant to flow as a source of life through the heart of Egypt, is now turned into a vessel of death. And not just the Nile. Did you notice verse 19? The waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Pharaoh's entire water system was turned to blood by the power of God Almighty. The river of blood then started a chain reaction. The blood killed off the fish, and as they began to decompose, the whole river was putrefied. Surely, this would have been foul and odious, and it'd make your stomach wretch, considering how much humans need water to live. It would have been fatal. According to verse 25, this bloody plague lasted at least a week. But this wasn't just some minor inconvenience, understand. The river was their lifeblood. It was the basis for their entire civilization. The the Egyptians used the Nile for almost everything. And without it, their land would become a desert. The river provided them a transportation system that helped them move goods from place to place. It formed the irrigation system that enabled them to grow their crops. It was their water supply. It was also their food supply because fish was one of the staples of the Egyptian diet. The river's annual flood set their calendar and, and gave them fertile topsoil for farming. One might even say that the land of Egypt, and ultimately the kingdom of Egypt, was a gift of the Nile itself. This plague from the Lord on high would have been absolutely devastating. This fact gets sung about later on in the Psalter. We sing about it, we read about it in Psalm 78 verse 44, or Psalm 105 verse 29. He turned their waters into blood, causing their fish to die. But you see, it wasn't merely that God was trying to inconvenience Egypt. It wasn't merely that God was trying to flex his power. He was taking aim right at the heart of their theology, targeting their very religious system and toppling their gods. And so that brings us to our third point. So Jehovah's demands, Egypt's disaster, and it was a disaster economically, physically, financially, but also, thirdly, deities dethroned. Because the Egyptians basically owed their existence to the Nile, it should come as no surprise to you that this pagan civilization effectively worshipped the great river as their creator and sustainer. Now, some of these deities you may have learned about over the years. You had Osiris, the god of the Nile, who was depicted with the river literally running through his bloodstream. Another god was Nu, the god of life in the river. And then there was the god Hapi, the god of the flood. Now, Hapi was a fertility god, And the idea was that the annual flooding of the Nile gave birth to Egypt cyclically, year after year, and nursed its strength. The Egyptians would praise Hapi as the giver of life, the lord of sustenance, the one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. And here one day, 
their anthropomorphized river god turned to blood. The instrument of life that flowed through their land had become nothing more than a vessel of death to them. With a word, with a a tap of the staff of Moses, as one man said, God gave them a water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis, making the object of their worship a thing of horror. God's attack on the Nile was a direct attack on Egypt and her gods. Close quote. In short, as Moses summarized it later in Numbers 33, verse 4, the Lord brought judgment on their gods. That's what, that's what the Lord was up to. Now, an, an interesting note here that's worth considering, and a few of you asked about it last week, so that's good that you were paying attention to the text and wondering how this plays out. In the ESV, which is the translation I'm reading from this evening, in verse 19, it says vessels of wood or vessels of stone. And depending on your translation, it might say bowls or containers, something like that. Now, know this, that that word vessels is supplied. It's supplied in English to smooth out the translation. In Hebrew, it just says wood and stone. Not vessels of wood and vessels of stone, just wood and stone. Now, that's interesting because most other times that wood and stone gets referenced in the Old Testament, it's in reference to idols, idols carved of wood or carved of stone. Some scholars argue that the Egyptian priests washed their idols early in the morning. That may have been what Pharaoh was doing down by the river in the morning, washing out his little idols, getting them ready for the day for his his devotional usage and so forth. If that's true, then this is God really just turning the knife and adding divine insult to injury in the points that he's making. When they suffered their first plague, they had to wash their idols in the humiliating blood of Yahweh's making. God turned the river to blood to show them how utterly worthless and contemptible it was to worship gods of wood and gods of stone. You want to cleanse them for your own use. You want to cleanse them for your own idolatry and your own paganism. You're going to have to wash them in the own and the very same blood that I turned your river into. When will you repent, Pharaoh? God is dethroning these idols before the Egyptians' very eyes in order to show them what a farce and what a sham they always were. And on this point, I love what one commentator, Phil Riken, says. He writes this. One day God will do the same thing to the gods of this age. The average American is not very different from an ancient Egyptian. We still worship the same gods. Only the names have changed. What we count on, what we work for, what we play at, what we dream about, these are the gods that we worship. We depend on our economy every bit as much as the Egyptians depended on theirs. They worship the Nile, we follow the Nasdaq. Rather than trusting in God alone, we depend on economic growth, rapid transportation, prepackaged foods. What would happen if all, he goes on, what would happen if all these things were taken away? Imagine what life in these United States would be like if the stock market collapsed, the price of gas rose to $40 a gallon, the supply of drinking water was contaminated, and grocery stores started running out of food. Can you imagine the utter chaos that would ensue? There would be rioting in the streets, death and destruction in every city. Close quote. It's not that hard to imagine it, is it? In this pandemic era in which we live, We've seen supply chain shortages. We've seen skyrocketing fuel prices. We've seen toxic water as a result of chemical spills in East Palestine, Ohio. The point being, friends, where's our source of confidence and trust? 
You've heard it said that God will bring a man to a point where he has stripped all else away so that he's left clinging only to Christ, only to realize that it was Christ that it was all he ever had. Can we say that with the psalmist? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May it be so. May it be so of us. So Jehovah's demand, Egypt's disaster, deities dethroned, and then finally and briefly, Pharaoh's disobedience. You see, for the heart made tender by the Holy Spirit, the heart that's receptive to God's word and ways that that cry that I just read from Psalm 73, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the response. That's the response that we ought to have. Not so for Pharaoh and his sorcerers. Though their gods are shamed and embarrassed and metaphorically dethroned, that king's heart remains yet hardened. Now verse 22 has it, and again I love how the NASB renders it, the soothsayer priests did the same by their secret arts. Pharaoh was hardened, thinking his men could do just the same as Yahweh. So verse 23, Pharaoh turned and he went into his house with no concern even for this. He had no concern for this. No concern. Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. His heart had already been hardened. So while his economy is falling apart, while his people are on the verge of death, as the river and lifeblood of his nation has turned into blood, he has no concern for it. Once again, as he's impervious to God's acts of judgment. And again, Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate God's sign. And as I've argued before, it may not have been truly identical to what God did because Satan is nothing but a knockoff artist. So whether they did it by sleight of hand, whether they did it by the power of demons, they performed a counterfeit miracle. But do notice the great irony here. If they were actually helpful sorcerers, if they were actually helpful magicians of evil and wickedness and witchcraft, you'd think that they would be able to undo the curse, to undo Yahweh's plague and turn the blood back into water and alleviate the misery of their country. But they don't. They just copy the problem and turn blood into water. They're impotent. Even Satan's counterfeit, you see, is really a pathetic sham and is made to bend into the service and into the agenda of God Almighty. That's always the way it is with the Lord. You try to disprove me? You try to to exercise a a counterfeit miracle to undermine my agenda? I'm just going to take what you do and bend it to serve my agenda that it was going to serve in the first place. That's always the way it is with the Lord. The most supreme example, of course, is the resurrection of Christ. You think of it. The Son of God maligned, falsely charged, condemned to death, bleeding, dying on a Roman cross, his life snuffed out. Satan thinking he'd gotten the victory. But rather than negating that horrific scheme, God in his sovereignty, from eternity past, had ordained it. And rather than simply erasing this gross evil, he actually subverts evil. And he conscripts it to serve his own purposes. The most malicious design of evil ever known is actually bent to serve the will of God Almighty. And Satan's moment of glee soon gives way to Christ's glorious resurrection. The awful death of Christ was the very thing that God used to grant sinners eternal life. And so, verse 24, All the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, because they could not drink from the water of the Nile. As one man says, the Egyptians were left to their own resources. 
This is what always happens to people who worship false gods. Sooner or later, their gods fail, and the people are left scrambling to make life work on their own. Close quote. See, friends, this passage is a fearsome depiction of divine judgment. It's a warning for all of us. Dare not trust in other gods. Dare not trust in other gods because they will, they will, they will fail you. There's an urgent summons to any who are hearing this, to any who are hearing this who may not be sure where you stand with the Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts, but rather cast yourself on his mercy. For indeed, this God is the true God. He is the God who subverts evil, bending it to serve his own glorious agenda. The God who works all things, all things, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We heed the warnings of his word, and we praise the Lord for such sovereign and subversive grace. Praise the Lord for his word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? O oh Lord, truly bless all that we have studied this evening. Bless your word to our hearts and for our everlasting good. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.